with Dr. Malone. Please introduce yourself because I run my mouth like an idiot, as you could tell, just with a couple minutes we were talking about beforehand. But I want you to introduce yourself. Uh, I run my mouth also. I'm Robert Malone. I'm a physician scientist. I live in uh, Madison, Virginia on a 50-acre horse farm. And I'm the guy that did originally invent mRNA delivery and mRNA vaccine technology, not these vaccines, but the platform technology back in the late 80s when I was probably about your age. I don't know. I was 28 uh, working as a graduate student. At, so pretty close. 28, 29 is when it happened for me, uh, working as a graduate student at the Salk Institute. Um, I, uh, my practice as a consultant, is, uh, I'm licensed in the state of Maryland. My practice as a consultant is uh, largely around U.S. government support. Uh, I, one of the things people ask me, what do you do for a living, in addition to raising horses? Um, and uh, the answer that I, one answer I can give is that I, assemble teams to call to solve complicated problems for the government often in the vaccine and biodefense space uh, so i was a uh, what we call a discovery uh, researcher in the area of gene therapy gene delivery vaccine technology for 15 or 20 years uh, and then after 9 11 took a position with a company called dineport vaccine company up in Frederick, which had the prime systems contract for all biodefense products for the Department of Defense for their advanced development. And that's when I kind of transitioned to being coming what I am now, which is a bit of a jack of all trades, but I, I have the full spectrum of the kit uh, for regulatory affairs, uh, clinical development, project management, uh, and business development in terms of grants and contracts capture for the government. Over this last uh, year and a half for this outbreak, I've won for clients about $120 billion in federal contracts. I'm, uh, overall, it's a couple billion for me. Um, uh, I was central in bringing the uh, Public Health Agency Canada vaccine forward for Ebola, just to give you an example, during the West, Ebola, West African Ebola outbreak. And we now call that the Merck vaccine. I was the guy that brought Merck to the table. So this is what I do. I'm a bit of an outbreak junkie or an outbreak specialist, depending on how you want to call it. And I don't typically uh, seek the limelight. I, I do support the press, have for decades, almost always on background. Uh, but a series of events have pulled me out of that and into the limelight. I haven't really sought it, but the, but the issues are so profound uh, and uh, that, that I felt it necessary when, you know, when duty calls, uh, when suddenly there was this moment in time where I had an opportunity to speak up about some key issues that I feel strongly about. And, uh, that has just caught fire. Uh, my Twitter account has gone crazy, um, and it's it probably hit eighty thousand this weekend. And that's on that's coming off a base of about a thousand three weeks ago, just to say. <laughs> and um, so that's not nothing. Uh, I think I've hit a nerve. And my 
my LinkedIn account went from about 3,000 to 6,000. It's really hard to build LinkedIn because you have to accept each one. Uh, so that means 3,000 more clicks than I had a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, it was deleted and I was uh, ghosted by LinkedIn as if I never existed. And that's an account that I've been using for at least a decade and a half. And all kinds of, of archived material, photos from the World Health Organization, talks that I've given at the WHO, all just flushed. So that's who I am in a nutshell. That's kind of a quick high level overview. Uh, I'm also trained in bioethics. My background, uh, let's see, UC Davis, uh, uh, biochemistry and molecular biology, uh, Northwestern University for my medical degree, uh, a master's degree as it, in, you know, in lieu of a PhD from the Salk Institute in UC San Diego. That's a big part of the story. Uh, and then a fellowship in global clinical development and research at Harvard. So that's the, the that part of the CV. So at 28, you were making mRNA vaccines. And at 30, I'm, uh, I'm in a studio in my apartment bedroom held together with duct tape and thumbnails. I think that I think the same. I think we're pretty much the same. It's, but as as we just said, we're all the same. Yes, exactly. That's we are all the same. Um, I live. I like to say so. So people, you know, I, I grew up in California, but people are like, "Why are you on Glenn Beck? Why would you be on Glenn Beck, Robert or uh, Tucker?" I get I get a lot of blowback over that. Why is why am I talking to conservative media? What I say to these people, look, I live in a red county in a purple state here in Virginia, and I got to talk to everybody. And I work for the government, and I got to check whatever politics I have at the door. But this whole cluster of issues has nothing to do with left or right. It's a totally different political axis that's going on now. And that's one of the things that's most fascinating. If I could just give a, an anecdote on that point. Sure. I'm told that Glenn Beck has never had a guest on three times in a row. Um, but I, I was on three times on Glenn Beck. Uh, yay. Uh, and, um, uh, and I've really got along with him. Uh, we had a good talk. You know, I didn't talk about the, some of the things that I, he can veer off on tangents on from time to time. And at the end of it, he said to me, you know, Robert, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And you've kept politics out of this whole thing. And uh, I thought that was a profound statement uh, that that I could I could have an active dialogue with Glenn Beck. We got along well. Uh, we it was about a, an hour and a half of airtime uh, spread out over three days, and we covered a lot of good stuff. And we found a lot of good common ground. And I think that's if there's a silver lining, there's a lot of really kind of scary things, I think, spooky things that are going on right now with the censorship, not just the virus. Uh, but if there's a silver lining, it's that it's realigning politics, I think. And it's it's creating a topic area that is nonpartisan, that most of us uh, that are, you know, American patriots, right? Whatever you want to call it, lovers of freedom. <laughs> Those of us who believe in free will and and uh, individual liberty over the collective are kind of coming together around this topic. Um, and then there's also the personal freedom versus big business angle and big media 
and big media and big government and big business all creating kind of a consensus right now that is, I can tell you, it's worrisome for people in Europe too. They are saying the same things we're saying here in the States. I had an hour-long call with a lawyer today that is working for the law firm that, uh, what's your name, Emil Cooney, um, uh, like George Cooney, uh, works for in the UK, uh, and they're getting ready to file a lawsuit against Pfizer, and they wanted me as an expert witness. And she was saying the same kind of things that Glenn Beck is saying. Yeah. Uh, it's It's... It's again, yeah. We're we're coming into a weird era. You know, this this podcast has been suspended twice already. Episode three seventy with a CIA veteran talking about the twenty twenty election got suspended. All right, whatever. Private company, I get it. Episode four eleven with Doctor Roger Hodkinson talking about COVID suspended. All right, sure. But and I'm the one above all. Despite being suspended, maybe it's some Stockholm syndrome. I'm the one that's always saying it, it's a private company. They're allowed to do what they want. But at a certain point, you have to start opening your eyes and go and listen. If they can ban talking about an election, if they can ban talking about COVID, and then they can start banning talking about vaccines. Again, let's play devil's advocate. It's me, Tommy, just some dude in his apartment yelling at a camera. All right, maybe they banned me from medical misinformation. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. What started to send chills down my spine was when they started to censor you. And that is when that and that is when I really started to kind of reach out to everyone that to watches my podcast and said, this isn't a left or a right thing, because right now, yes, it's a private company. It's very clear there's a coordinated effort. And, and the danger is when the government puts their hand in the puppet of the private company and goes, oh, it's, the, it's not the government censoring you. It's 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 a private company. And if it starts with an election, it starts with covid if you can get away with these, all you have to do is look at history, even just the last 120 years, to see where this goes. And it, it, it always ends. It always ends. Just like you plant a seed and it might take 100 years, but it eventually becomes an oak tree. It always ends with genocide. Sometimes it's a year. Sometimes it takes 30 years. It always ends this way. We're at the tip of this slippery, slippery slope, and it is sliding down. And again... You ban me, a 30-year-old without a medical degree? Sure, I get it. When you are being systematically censored, it's a coordinated effort. You are being disappeared like 1984. They're editing Wikipedia, they're editing you out of it, and then they're locking the page out of safety for vandalism. You are being disappeared. Again, you disappear me, no one really cares, and I get it. There's no room to disappear the man who invented this technology and to me, it's terrifying because of the side effects of the vaccine that we're not allowed to talk about, but also for the precedent that this is setting. In two years, are you going to be able to talk about unarmed black men being shot? In five years, are you going to be able to talk about terrorism? In 10 years, are you going to be able to talk about the history of the USSR? Where does this go? But that's all beyond the scope of this podcast. Back to the present day. And yet... And yet, it's and yet it is within the scope. Yes, sir. It's specifically within the scope. To your point, I was mentioning this law firm that I was speaking to in the UK two hours ago, and um, they were saying the same exact things. And um, and 
the the lawyer, volunteer lawyer, mom, brought up uh, 1930s Germany, and she volunteered. I didn't bring it up. She brought it up. Uh, this is happening again and again and again in my conversations. And she said the thing that she found really spooky is that she's been reading uh, some of the statements in, in press and logic that was rolled out early in, in those events and how uh, ethnic groups or populations were characterized. Obviously, we're talking about the Jews, among others. Um, and she said, I could substitute the word Jew for the word anti-vaxxer, and the words would otherwise be the same. The logic that we need to segregate these people, we need to keep them out of society, we need to cordon them off, all of that kind of logic. The, this word anti-vaxxer is, is it become a very broad label. And it is readily applied, apparently, uh, to anyone who questions anything relating to these products. That, that I can tell you the scientific community we're all scratched our heads going, what is going on? And it's and it's very pervasive. And it, it's reaching out into, there's some very odd things going on. Um, there, there, in the academic world, there are many academics are very security conscious. That's why they do that, right? It's like being a gubby, uh, working for the government and getting a pension and those kinds of things. You know, it's all about security. And uh, so these are typically people that like security and they like conformity often. And they are becoming very activists. And, and I'm sure you're aware of some of the ways that they're becoming activists in, in these academic communities uh, relating to other topic areas. Let's not go there. Uh, but, you know, in terms of patterns of speech and things that are allowed to be discussed and not allowed to be discussed in the words that you're supposed to use and those kinds of things. But this, in the scientific space, these same people are, have become a cadre of self-appointed thought police, academic thought police. And when discussions start happening on, in social media or Manuscripts get published after peer review that they don't like, that have, have findings or messages they don't like. They attack. They attack mercilessly. And they will use ad hominems, whatever is necessary to denigrate and delegitimize the, the scientific discourse, except for that which comports with uh, whatever the party line is as they perceive it. And that's also kind of bizarre. I mean, there's, there's a whole matrix of, of dimensions here that, don't, you know, older folks like myself that have been through outbreaks like this a bunch of times, we're confused. We, I, I just have been um, really uh, confused. And you may, the thing that launched me into this space was the Brett Weinstein podcast. And Brett is a, a dark web guy, right? He's not left. He's not right. He's kind of in milk. And, uh, and he's been running this really successful podcast. It's grown and grown because he is a PhD geneticist, intellectual, free thinker, open mind, kind of general smart guy that can speak very well. And so can his wife. 
And that's generated a very active podcast that's been generating for them their, their revenue. That's how their family lives off of the podcast these days, off of the revenue that's generated from YouTube. They've now been deplatformed, mm-hmm. uh, demonetized. They've lost over half their family income because they did two podcasts. One was talking about ivermectin, and the other one was the one that I was on, which also talked about ivermectin, and apparently that's why YouTube hit him, was because he spoke about this 40-year-old drug that uh, has one of the best safety databases in the world uh, that has been administered to hundreds of millions of people. And there are, there are data supporting that this drug may have activity as both a prophylactic and a therapeutic for um, uh, COVID disease. And uh, those data aren't as solid as they will be in a few months. But the general point is, at safe doses, it seems to be active. It's, Red thinks it's a silver bullet. I think not so much, but it, I think, you know, intensely embedded in the data. And uh, I tried to add it to our clinical trials for the Army. Uh, we can talk about that if you want to. But um, so I believed enough in it that I thought it merited having studies. And the NIH believes that it merits studies because they've launched Active 6, which is the outpatient ivermectin trial. It cannot be discussed. Discussing ivermectin is a forbidden topic. And I, it's hard for a lot of us to make sense out of that. In a, in a situation where we're having, you know, in many cases, surging 500 to 1,000 people, Americans dying a day, um, to decide that we will not even allow discussion of a safe drug that may or may not be effective, but it certainly doesn't kill people unless you go out to track your supply and buy Cadillac and drink it. Um, but I wouldn't give Cadillac to my dogs or my or my horses either. Um, so, uh, you know, um, there's something really wrong here. And early on, the company that invented it and got the Nobel Prize for inventing it, called Merck, which doesn't actually market it in the United States, it's sold by a company called Edenbridge here in the States. Uh, Merck came out and said this is a dangerous drug and should not be used. Uh, that's bizarre because uh, it's not a dangerous drug. And, uh, and it's hard to understand how, why they would say that except for the fact that they are investing or they're getting us to invest, and the truth is, the government, ergo the taxpayer, to invest bill, literally billions of dollars in patented drugs that they seek to develop. And there's, you know, there's a school of thought that what's really going on here is a concerted effort of the government together with the pharmaceutical industry to keep drug-based solutions that could be applied in outpatient environment to save lives off the market so they don't compete with the vaccines. The other thing that really spooked me out, you know, once I had this higher profile, people started sending me stuff. And um, and I was griping about the censorship uh, online. And someone sent me a link to this British Broadcasting Corporation press announcement 
Okay, so BBC not generally considered to be, uh, you know, that's not a Reddit group. Uh, it is not QAnon. It's the British Broadcasting Corporation. I mean, it's, you know, as buttoned yeah. up as you can get. Yeah. Uh, and and so this, this is for the Trusted News Initiative. And I invite your listenership, if they're, if they're on the fence, what is this censorship? Like Brett was. When I had that podcast with Brett, it, towards the end of it, we start talking about these things. And we're like, it can't possibly be that there's a conspiracy that all these people are working together. Um, and, and you pull up Trusted News Initiative, British Broadcasting Corporation, COVID. Okay, that's all the keywords you need. You'll pop this press announcement. And as you scroll down in that press announcement, there's a list of every, practically every big media company in the world. Agency France, AFP, Associated Press, Washington Post, Google, Microsoft, uh, YouTube, uh, uh, LinkedIn. They're, they're all there uh, in this organization that was set up to control what they perceived as threats to elections a couple of years ago. It gets back to your narrative at the, at the launch. They were set up to control what were perceived as uh, social media and, and media-based threats to elections being manipulated. And <clears throat> last winter, they all got together, apparently under BBC leadership, and decided that they were going to cooperate to eliminate threats to vaccination threats that they perceived as misinformation. So misinformation is defined as however the Trusted News Initiative defines it. Uh, I, I don't know exactly where they take their leadership from. I doubt that they're on the phone to Tony Fauci all the time, but somehow they're getting what they believe to be truth um, from an official source. And if, if you put information out that is not aligned with that truth, it will be repressed. Um, you will be deplatformed, like I got on LinkedIn. And I think I sent you the, the LinkedIn justification for deplatforming. It is an amazing document, right? I got deplatformed for posting a Wall Street Journal article on the on the risks associated with vaccine, right? Major front page editorial risks with vaccine, Wall Street Journal, um, for posting. Uh, scientifically valid information that comes from peer review, but refuted the Reuters uh, um, fact-check that had been done on me. Um, so it wasn't easy. I got fact-checked. They quoted a government official. They kind of misrepresented what the government official said. They misrepresented what I said. And then they posted that I was uh, basically a liar um, and putting out false information. And it took me about four clicks to pull up the the uh, peer-reviewed references and send it out to the people in my circle. But I was talking about this on LinkedIn. That was one of the things that LinkedIn cited as a reason to kick me off. And the other one, this is the most bizarre of all. Basically, they kicked me off. They censored me for complaining about censoring. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's happened to me. <laughs> I... You know, you can't talk about censoring or you'll be censored. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty circular. <laughs> so I, I think I I hope. So what I, I finally got from LinkedIn, this statement, uh, and it's fascinating if you read it, 
uh, and I posted it on the Twitter account mm-hmm. and elsewhere, and I suspect it may be come available through a variety of social media uh, and uh, conservative uh, talk radio, etc. I, I suspect that might happen. Um, uh, and uh, they didn't even spell the title correctly. Uh, there's there's typos in in the title of what they sent back to me. I mean, it's it's like a clown car. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's it's absurd, is what it is. And you know, I've I have to be very aware of myself because I I don't I don't watch any like movies. I don't I don't read fiction. And so my favorite entertainment are conspiracies, and I've always loved them for their entertainment value, like a Marvel movie or Spider-Man. So I love things like that, uh-huh. and I have to be aware of myself because that means I can't fall. So, when, you know, when I see something, you know, it's I've talked to Charlie Duke, who's walked on the moon, and, you know, the unfortunate side effect is that destroyed my favorite conspiracies about the moon because there he is and he's talked. Okay. So I've been trying my hardest to play devil's advocate about this censorship for my own as we said before the podcast voltaire the sign of an intelligent man is he who can entertain an idea without necessarily believing it i have to try to entertain these ideas it's not tommy world the world does not revolve around me as much as my ego would like to think it does so when i see these things getting banned systematically i try i'm like what could be the rationalization that one day i look back and say oh that's what it was they're scared of people not getting the vaccine. They think that COVID's going to kill everyone in the world and it's going to grind global trade to a halt. Sure, I don't really believe that, but sure, let's entertain it. Is it a conspiracy? Are there people behind the behind the curtain pulling the strings? No, that's just my, that's my mind who loves to see those connections. But as it goes from censoring me to censoring you to censoring people for talking about censoring, to I've posted the screenshots of the emails I get from YouTube for discussing medical misinformation that harms your viewers and directly contradicts the WHO. I've been censored for posting that. I say all of that to say, at a certain point, it is now a conspiracy to not believe it's a conspiracy. It's the writing is on the wall, and to me... There's two possible paths this takes. Is it Occam's razor? Is it just a bunch of money and the pharmaceutical industry wants money and so they're paying off big tech to silence opposition so they can sell their product? Or is there something more nefarious? What what do you believe? So it's, we've talked about censorship. What is it at the core that you believe is the reason for the censorship? And furthermore, what are the problems you see with the mRNA vaccine? Okay, good. So let's do the easy one because it's sure. the lead off. And thanks for that rip that you just did. Um, uh, Brett spoke about emergent phenomena. That what we're seeing with this convergence, and in this specific case, I, I like to say, you know, there's a whole lot of things about the world that I don't know anything about. But I know this little cone of things that I experience. I deal with CNN, I deal with New York Times, I, I'm in this medical space, you know, in, in defense space, in government space, and I know the things that I touch on are real. So that's my reality. And I can only extrapolate from that 
for what's happening elsewhere. So Brett Weinstein is it, we're we're going into this towards the end of the podcast. He and he talks he starts talking about these emergent phenomena, and it doesn't have to be that everybody got around the table in the White House or at the WHO or Davos or fill in the blank, right? Um, uh, that there have been systems built that have reached a level of maturity and dysfunction that are now interacting with each other in an unpredictable way to give us an emergent phenomena that no one might have predicted, and yet here it is. And that was his take on it. When I ran into the Trusted News Initiative, uh, I, I, I suddenly had one of those, this can't be true. It's got to be some crazy guy put this up. It's a mock webpage. Um, uh, but it is. Um, and then I think the tipping point for LinkedIn was a couple of mornings ago, three, I think it was three mornings ago. You know, we're, we're getting bludgeoned uh, by the uh, trolls uh, that I, in fact, checked by associated by um, Reuters. And, uh, and that everything, you know, they're calling my entire legitimacy into question. They're even criticizing my beard. Uh, you know, it's trolls. Right. Your, your beard's awesome. Up. Hold on. Your beard's awesome. <laughs> let's let's yeah. establish. So they that. were saying the beard was an affectation. Thank you. So, um, so, so the trolls will latch on to anything, right? You know that, and uh, and they come at you like uh, ants, uh, just you know, tick. But, um, so they're using the the fact checking from Reuters, which is fallacious, but it's Reuters. And that apparently means more than the actual scientific literature. Uh, and um, so Jill, my wife, pulls up a second degree connection from me on LinkedIn. And it's the chairman of the board of Reuters, Thomson Reuters. And he very proudly establishes in, in his header that he also serves on the board of directors of Pfizer. I mean... <laughs> And, and I post this, you know, I post this and I say, um, you know, this looks like a conflict of interest to me. Is it a conflict of interest to you? What do you think? And, of course, there's a blizzard of responses with everybody saying, are you crazy? Of course it is. This is overt. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. And somebody else points, well, that explains why Reuters keeps targeting the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccines. I mean, I... You can't make it up, and it just goes deeper and deeper, and you can't make it up. You couldn't imagine. I was on, right before this, I was on uh, the phone with uh, the guy that uh, has created Trial Site News as a uh, a censorship-free space for information about clinical research, Daniel O'Connor. And, and, uh, and we were talking about the things that he's aware of and he's touching. Um, there's another conspiracy out about the, the lab leak hypothesis. There's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, and uh, he was looking at what the LinkedIn justification had been for me, etc. cetera. Um, and he said, you know, this, you, no screenwriter in Hollywood can come up with this story. He said, it's incredible. Uh, and it just goes on and on. So, that, you know, 
is there is there a grand conspiracy? What I see is this interdigitation, uh, an increasingly deep cross connectivity between government, industry, and media. And uh, just to give you a tiny, like I said, I only know the little window that I can see. So to illustrate, Moderna vaccine is actually the NIH Vaccine Research Center vaccine. Moderna is funded, the merger was created by DARPA, government money, okay? Um, and I read the DARPA program and they announced it, okay? Uh, for MRA's drug and MRA vaccines. So they funded Moderna. NIH Vaccine Research Center engineered the uh, molecular biology that underpins the mRNA that is put into the Moderna product. Everybody that touched that engineering, there's not eight of them, the works at the Vaccine Research Center, now pretty much has $150,000 on top of their salary for life in uh, royalty, royalty payments, okay? And those royalty payments are also coming back into National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, Tony Fauci's shop. But Tony Fauci is sitting at the top of the pyramid, setting the policy for what gets done and what doesn't get done, what drugs get tested, what drugs don't get tested, what vaccines get allowed, what vaccines don't get allowed, because the lines between Tony and Janet Woodcock, who was one of the big guns at Operation Warp Speed and is currently acting director of the FDA, are all blurred. The, the FDA now is very much uh, responsive to, to government pressure. It used to be independent. It isn't anymore. They're all interconnected and and there are a very small number of leaders at the top now in this whole health and human services infrastructure. BARDA got, got it. I don't know if you know what BARDA is. Okay. Uh, that's a separate uh, agency that was set up under the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness Response. BARDA are the ones that give out the big billion-dollar contracts to develop drug or vaccine or a test or whatever that kind of stuff is. Um, to actually make a product, and they're the ones that do the purchasing for the strategic national stockpile. You probably know about that. So BARDA is an interesting little uh, agency that kind of got built out of the DOD uh, historically after 9-11. Uh, so to handle civilian biodefense, the people I work with is are in Defense Threat Reduction Agency, mm -hmm. and our mission is the warfighter. So we don't touch... That that's the bright line between the cities and the DOD folks is whether it goes to BARDA or it goes to DITRA. And I prefer to support DITRA. I've supported BARDA in the past. It's just um, one of those things. So my point is that what is coming more and more into focus, in part because I'm pissed off, um, and I've turned my efforts to what's going on here, guys, yeah. uh, and, and trying to ferret it out, is is that and maybe I'm able to see it and and pick out those connections because I've been doing this for 30 years working with the government and industry and the regulators and blah, blah, blah. so I've got the contacts I can call up my friends and the government and say hmm what's going on here what's the real problem uh, and and it all seems to be coming together but I don't have that good of contacts in the media but 
this trusted news initiative uh, documents that are out there kind of suddenly made that part come into focus. Now you want to talk about the uh, the vaccines. Yes, sir. So I'm going to start this off because usually what a podcaster will say is, well, tell me how, you know, what is an RNA vaccine? And, you know, what makes that difference? They ask those kind of questions or some, sometimes they say, how did, how did you discover it? What did you do? Okay. So those are all related, but they're all basically asking what the heck are these things? Can, um, can I interrupt you and like a total unprofessional, can I go grab a bottle of water? Yeah. go, <laughs> Dr. Malone, tell it, tell everyone, uh, yeah, I, or I can edit this out. I'm sorry. You'd think after 490 episodes, 495 episodes, I would have figured this. I've had a bottle of water every single time, and I realized, I don't know if you saw earlier, I reached down, and I was like, where is it? So excuse me for yeah, that. Yeah, that was one. I noticed that was one of the first things Brett did was he laid out a bottle of water for each of us in the glass. I, I do uh, it. I, I was really impressed. I do it every episode. Lights. I've got my phone. I've got a charger. I've got a backup like Wi-Fi thing in case it goes down. And of course, I dropped the ball with Doctor Malone. But I'll cut that part out. So most most people say, "So tell me what an RNA vaccine is. Tell me what this is." But um. Yeah, no, of course, before I get into any of that, of course, I bring up the moon and we talk about QAnon. So uh, this podcast, I imagine, is unlike the other ones you've done. <laughs> but yes, tell tell me what you see as an important piece of information to lay down, sort of the index or the key, you know, at the beginning of a chapter in a book and, or organic chemistry. This, you know, the red ones, that one represents oxygen and the purple <laughs> one's nitrogen. What are some important things we need to know before we jump into it at the to avoid it being nothing but jargon. Good. And I try really hard not to do jargon. Okay. Um, So, uh, and when I do, I usually take a moment and translate it. Sometimes I can't avoid it. Um, So that, that's my, I I aspire to be jargon. (laughs) Um, So I'd like to just introduce it to your, your listeners so what is an RNA vaccine and what are these adenoviral vector vaccines? Because they're related. Um, and the guiding principle, you gave me a quote uh, from Voltaire, I think. And so I'm going to quote Richard Feynman, okay. the physicist, mm-hmm. um, that if you can't make a complicated idea simple, then you don't really understand it. So I think I understand this and I'm going to try to make it simple. Let's um, see. Everybody in your cohort gets it with computers. They get it better than I do, right? Okay, so I'm going to use the computer metaphor. Your genome, your DNA, is the hard drive. On the hard drive, you've got programs that are coded in. That's the coding of the DNA. Now, we do it with, with, instead of a binary, it's four bits. A, T, and G, and C, but it's the same basic thing. It's just a different, it's, you know, four base instead of two base. Um, now I'm going to jump. So that's, that's where the information is stored. It's on the hard drive. It's in the form of programs. You can think of programs as associations of genes that are interrelated and talk to each other and communicate, but that's not necessary. Just 
think of it as there's programs sitting on your genomic DNA hard drive. Out in the cytoplasm, that's the outer part of the cell. The cell has two main membranes. There's the outer membrane that separates the cell from the rest of the world. And there's the inner membrane that set, separates most of the cell from the special compartment of the cell that has the DNA. I'm oversimplifying it. You can think of the DNA almost as the brain of the cell, right? As the hard drive, as the programs. Out in that outer portion, there's some machines. Let's call them robots. Let's imagine them as industrial robots, you know, right? Okay, like a yeah, computer numeric cutter or whatever. You know, they're assembling. They're, these are general purpose robots. They can build cars. They can build uh, wooden structures. They can build fine woodworking, whatever you want. They, that's their general purpose industrial robots. Those are the trans protein translation machinery, we call them ribosomes. Okay, so robots are the metaphor for the thing that makes protein little engines. Somehow the information has got to get from the hard drive and the programs out to the robots. That thing that conveys that information between those, that's RNA. That's mRNA. mRNA is a copy of the program, of parts of the program, the output of the program that sits inside that uh, nucleus, that inner walled area. And it gets transported out into the cytoplasm, that's that outer compartment. And it goes and it gets assembled. It's like a ticker tape that these bio robots read and they make the proteins. So the central dogma of, of, if you can get that in your mind, you now understand the central dogma of biology, we call it. DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein. But we've got a metaphor. The DNA is the hard drive, got the programs, got the industrial robots, the RNA is the message connecting them. The bitstream. RNA vaccines are essentially co-opting. They're a hacker. They're hacked. And they're putting new information in that bitstream. So that those industrial robots, instead of making what they would have otherwise been making, they start making vaccine subunits. So the RNA vaccine is a way to kind of hijack the standard flow of information and data that goes from the nucleus out to the cytoplasm where it causes protein manufacturing using these little tiny biorobots. And we're co-opting that process, short-circuiting it, and jamming into that bitstream of signals some new code, like a hacker. So you can think of RNA vaccines as like a hacker. That makes sense? Yes, sir. Good. So you got it. Yay. I'm a doctor now. An, adeno, an, ad, an adenovirus vector, which is the other way to do this in a licensed vaccine now. So this is the J&J &J vaccine. That takes a cold virus, a virus that would cause cold symptoms in you, which is pretty circulating, and engineers it so that you take out some of the DNA, because that's a DNA virus, and you swap in other DNA it might code for, say, spike. And that virus is able to infect a cell and inject its genes, and they get transported all the way back through that whole process to the central processor. And 
it comes to live in that central processor area and it makes RNA, the message, and it co-ops that midstream in a different way, but it co-ops it from the nucleus in a more permanent way. So both the RNA vaccines and the advectored vaccines are gene therapy technology applied to vaccination. That is what they are. And in terms of the big ahas in my entire life, that was one of the big ones, was when I was a rabid, passionate, uh, committed to becoming a gene therapist person, working at the Temple for Vaccines in La Jolla called the Salk Institute at one of the top gene therapy labs in the world. When the postdoc I was working with, Dan St. Louis, did an experiment where he was putting genes into cells and then those cells into mice and making protein, but found that the protein would stop being made after about three weeks. A lot of us in the lab racked our brains. What could be causing this? And, you know, young people like yourself often have a lot more open minds than older farts like me. So at that time, I had a very open mind. And um, I was halfway trained as an MD, just finished the first two years and plus a year of grad school. And uh, and I said, I know what this is. This is an immune response, which at the time was heresy. You just, the idea that gene therapy would cause immune responses against the foreign gene, people hadn't really thought of. Now it's obvious. But when that realization hit and everybody figured out, oh yeah, that's really what's going on. It, it hit like a, like a truck into a brick wall because it meant all of the gene therapy stuff that we were doing wasn't going to work very well because your body doesn't know if you have cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy, you have a genetic inborn error in metabolism and gene defect. And you put a good gene in there that makes the right protein as opposed to the broken protein that your body's currently making because you have that mutation. Your immune system doesn't know that it's the good protein. It just knows that it's a different protein and it will attack it and it will attack the cells that make it. So big flaw in gene therapy. And the insight was, oh, life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's not going to work for gene therapy, but these same technologies could really work good for making vaccines. That's where it starts. And the truth is that the very same adenovirus vector technology that's being used for the J&J vaccine goes right back to that lab in that moment. There was a senior postdoc in the lab named Ginkgo Valerio that was working at the very forefront of recombinant adenoviral technology for gene therapy in the Salk Institute when I was there. And uh, he left there and he created a company called Crucell in the Netherlands. And uh, after he finished his postdoc, and he came to me at a scientific meeting about three years after he had left and I had left. He said, Robert, you're right. I need to stop focusing on Crucell on gene therapy and I need to turn to focusing on vaccines. And he did that, the company exploded in growth and was bought out by J&J for $1.3, $1.4 billion. At the time, that was a good amount of money. And it now is, that is the basis for the J&J vaccine product that we all use. So the RNA vaccines 
and that endoviral vector vaccine both came out of Inder's lab with that little window of time in 87 to 89. So from that, you can appreciate. And in the, in the SEC filings for both Moderna and Pfizer, there's a clear and unambiguous statement that the FDA considers these products to be gene therapies. So that's one of the, the forbidden things to say, mm-hmm. just to let you know. So that's it. We're now going to be blocked. Um, oh, we uh, uh, This podcast <laughs> was getting blocked long ago. <laughs> we <laughs> Don't worry. That wasn't we're, it. We're, <laughs> it's already in the cards. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it is one of the forbidden things to say, but in fact, it's in their SEC prospectus filings that these are gene therapies. And they trace back to a gene therapy lab. And what that all means is you are can, you are putting foreign genetic material into your cells when you take those vaccines, whether it's the J&J, Moderna, or Pfizer. And that's causing your cells to become little protein manufacturing uh, factories. So now, hopefully, I've in that five to ten minutes, I've kind of walked you from the central dogma of biology through kind of getting it. I hope mm-hmm. uh, did that all make sense? Yes, sir. As much as as much as okay, cool. I think it did. Yeah, uh, good enough. Okay, probably more than it did before. I mean, a lot of people see the RNA thing, and it seems kind of mysterious. So I talked about the adenoviral vectors are just a cold virus that's been engineered. The RNA is actually made in a test tube, in a chemical synthesis process. And for somebody with your inclination and interest, it's of interest that I can go and uh, write a genetic sequence that I want to have that would make a given protein or a mutant protein of whatever kind and send it off. And back comes milligrams of chemically pure RNA of exactly that sequence where it's the whole process is that efficient now it used to be but that's where we're at right now is you can basically create custom genes the rna how does the rna get into the cell is the next question that might be uh bouncing around inside of your noggin um and for this one i like to use the metaphor of a fedex pack you know, letter pack, cardboard on the outside, letter on the inside. The RNA is the letter. The part that is the outside part of the FedEx pack is actually fats. So the chemical term is lipids. Mm-hmm. And it's a mixture of lipids. And the way it works, and these lipids, some of them are of chemical structures that they disrupt membranes they enable fusion membrane fusion because membranes are fats also and uh so some of them are are fusogenic lipids some of them uh increase the fluidity of the mixture one of the components is polyethylene glycol that you might have heard it's there to stabilize the mixture um and the key one is a what's called a cationic lipid, which is to say a positively charged fat. Why does the positively charged matter? Because RNA is a great big negative polymer. It's a it's a polyanion. It's got 
phosphates in between each of the bases. They're charged. And so it's a, it's like great big chain that's negative at every link. So if you mix a positive fat and a negatively charged linear polymer in the presence of a solvent that is polar somewhat like ethanol, they'll, they'll both be able to swim at the same time and the positive stuff will stick onto the negative stuff. It's not very, uh, you know, there's no high science or quantum physics here. This is simple stuff. This is about as simple as chemistry gets. Yeah. Negative likes positive. Yeah. Uh, and they, they just come together. And these other things, once those are assembled, these other things nucleate and they wrap around them and form these lipidic particles or ribonucleoid particles. Um, so that is the package is that lipid that wraps around the RNA. Now, I'm going to take you even deeper in the complexities. Let's see if we can do this. See if I can pull a full Feynman. Um, okay. Uh, back in the day when I made my discoveries 30 years ago, we were using these lipids that were charged in a way that the positive charge was always on. And for the chemists in the audience, these are quaternary means. Uh, but you don't need to know that. They're positively charged and they're always on in pretty much all conditions. The breakthrough that enabled this generation of products, it's very different from what I was doing. It's fundamentally the same. It's wrapping the RNA in fats using positively charged lipids. But instead of lipids that were always charged, they used lipids, and it's Peter Cullis is the name. He's worked on this for 40 years. He's at the University of British Columbia and his team. They use lipids that are conditionally on as a function of pH. So at, at higher pHs, pHs, they're positive. Um, I'm sorry, at lower pHs, more acid environment. Sorry, I got confused. More acid environment, uh, they're charged. And as the environment becomes more basic, like um, sodium hydroxide, uh, then they lose that charge. And you can figure out what happens if they're binding to the RNA and they're charged, and then they lose their charge, the thing falls apart, and the RNA gets free. And so they built these compounds and these assemblies using these what are called ionizable lipids that are that are pH sensitive, so that they stick when they mix make the mixture in the ethanol that I was talking about this solvent that makes it so that, you know, we, we all know what ethanol is um, uh, from our personal experience. Uh, so uh, so the ethanol has acid in it so that the uh, charges are very positive in that environment. So it makes it stick to the RNA really good. And then you get rid of that acid and that ethanol and those little particles stay together and then when you inject them and they, they fuse with your cells, the charge environment changes and they let loose of the RNA. And that is the magic sauce that is making RNA vaccines possible. It's what transformed this from a, well, that's a cool idea and you can get stuff to work in the laboratory um, to we're going to save the world. Uh, was that core concept that you just got hopefully so 
So the DNA the DNA is the is the DJ at the radio station playing the record. And you could say the ribosomes are everybody's radio that are receiving the messages and we're all hearing a song. We're all hearing Stairway to Heaven in our car. You go in and you tamper with the record and how said that sounds great. How do you tamper with the record? You're at a studio with security. MRNA goes there dressed as a DJ and goes, Hey, I'm here for the night shift. And he comes in there and he plays yeah. Stairway to Heaven, but he also puts in a remix or something, whatever the remix is you want. In this case, something to produce a specific thing to fight COVID. So you're. Yeah. And that specific thing. So good metaphor works for you. Um, and you've got the idea. All right. Uh, so that's cool. Right. Um, so let's take the next step. What is being made by that manufacturing step, um, those machines? What is playing on everybody's beats? Okay. And uh, there's a lot of options you could choose. You want something that comes from the virus, some part of the virus that would normally be made by the genome of the virus, which is RNA in this case. Plenty of DNA viruses like adenoviruses. Um, so you want something that's made by the virus that will stimulate your immune system to produce antibodies or killer T cells. So these are the migratory cells that cruise around. These are your army rangers, okay? Um, that, that, that are out of patrol looking for bad stuff. And uh, they have to get educated about what the bad guy looks like. Because, uh, you know, it could be a lot of things. Sure. Um, hard to tell whether whether you're bad guy or good guy if everybody's dressed in green, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so they have to get educated, those killer T cells. And the B cells that make your antibodies also have to get educated about what the enemy is. And so you need an antigen, typically a protein, not always, that looks like the virus, but it's taken from the virus, but it's not the virus. And the, the, if you look at a SARS-CoV-2 virus, the thing that stands out is the complexes of spike protein, the little knobs that stick out. And if you looked at that, you'd say, oh, if I'm going to design a vaccine, I want it against those things, right? That's just, it would be your reaction and you would be right. That, that is the, the default thing to take is the protein that sticks out from the surface of the virus that's used by the virus to stick to cells and attack them, infect them. And that's what Spike does. Problem is Spike does a lot of other stuff. We'll get there. But... If you're if you're in a rush, and it's uh, you know December 2019 or January 2020, and and your pants are on fire, and you got to make a vaccine, and you're going to use this new genetic vaccination technology, you got to figure out which gene you want to express. And the and the easy falling off a log obvious thing is to express spike, and that's what they did. So the RNAs and the adenovirus DNA have the genetic information for spike protein. And uh, all three of those genetic vaccines that we could use here in the States all produce spike protein, as does the virus. And um, that's not the only protein that could be used, and we don't have to use the whole length spike, but we did. The guys that engineered it and gals that engineered it did 
What they didn't think about is that with these little RNA viruses, any protein, every protein that the virus makes is so evolved that it has multiple activities. It's been under intense evolutionary pressure and they are full of overlapping biologic activities. So it's not just an antigen spike actually is biologically active. It does stuff. It does stuff for the virus, including tweaking the immune system through regulatory pathways like NF-kappa B. So spike is biologically active, but it's an obvious antigen. And for all three of these vaccines that were developed in a rush, people kind of looked at it and said, hmm, what's the thing that's most likely to work? And they said, spike is it. So that's what they used. And um, that kind of takes us to the present. Uh, as time went by and more research was done after it became clear that this was going to be a global pathogen, uh, science, scientists started asking, why is this virus causing so many problems? How is it working? And they found that it does a bunch of things and they could test that in cell culture or organoids, which is a stem cell derived uh, uh, organ-like structures. So more human and uh, mouse models and other things. And they found that the virus will open the blood brain barrier and the virus is toxic to cells. And then they said, what part of the virus is causing these problems? Well, the answer is spike in the native virus is directly cytotoxic and um, directly opens blood-brain barrier and does a variety of other things, including binding to its normal receptor, ACE2. ACE2 isn't just nothing. It's a key protein that regulates things like blood pressure. So it does, ACE2 does a bunch of things. So when the virus binds ACE2, it causes ACE2 to do stuff in terms of signaling and biologic effects. So we, we made these things, we made them as vaccines, we made them so that we would use a technology that makes your body make them, spikes, spike protein. And uh, they were supposed to stay put on the surface of the cells that were making them because they put a little linker, a little short, um, polypeptide on the end so that they would insert into the membrane and stay there. But like often is the case, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, and uh, there are proteases that clip spike off of the surface of the cells, and then you end up with free spike or free spike subunit cruising around in your blood. How do we know that? That only came out recently, like about a month ago. When someone published a result from Harvard and uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in nurses that had been vaccinated with Moderna, and they showed that they had spike protein in their blood. That wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, that means that it's circulating all over into your brain and your heart and everywhere else. Uh, so that's kind of an awful because in parallel, we found out that the native spike is toxic. And also in parallel, we start, the. Um, there's a belief that this is a perfectly safe system 
but and so there's a bias to not um, identifying any safety signal. And, you know, we're all taught, you know, you, we're all taught, and it's all blasted at us from the media and above, that um, these are perfectly safe. But uh, it becomes more and more clear that there's some bears in the woods. Something isn't right. The first one to show that is the adenoviral vectors. And because they make much more protein for a longer period of time than the RNA does. And uh, what are the problems with the adenoviral vectors? Blood clots. Blood clots in a deep venous thrombosis, which throw up, throw into your lungs uh, as pulmonary emboli and uh, throw up your carotids as uh, emboli into your brain. And clotting in your brain. Um, so this is uh, uh, central cerebral venous coagulopathy. So blood clots in the draining part, the vein side of your brain. Uh, and uh, so these problems crop up with the adenovirus and they put it on hold for a while and then they say, well, we think the risk-benefit ratio is such that we should go ahead and start using it because we need vaccines so badly. A lot of European countries at that point just said, nope, that's it, none of that, uh, too risky. We go barely along and then we, the, somebody, a biostatistician working with the FDA, a guy from Oracle, um, looks at one of the databases that you could look in called VAERS, which is a very, in a, it's a very antique, kludgy. It's like if you're, if you've had any programming, it's like it was written in COBOL. Um, you know, uh, old, Pledgy database, a uh, VAERS system, it's self-reported, which means that it's biased. It only catches a tiny fraction. You know, if you die, you're not going to be around to put your report into the VAERS system, sure. for example, just to one example. Um, and your your mother would be amazingly alarmed if you died. Probably the first thing she thinks about is not, oh, I need to log on and exactly. go report this to the CDC. Exactly. <laughs> it's not, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or your girlfriend. Uh, and she's having alteration in her menses, the last thing she's going to do is log on a government website and say, hey, I'm having alterations in my, my menses, right? It's just not going to happen. My throat hurts. Do I take some Cepasol or am I like, <laughs> time to call the CDC? I got a sore throat. Right, it's, exactly. Yeah, it's not the natural, yeah. okay. Yeah, so so it's, it's, a, it's a very flawed database. But this guy managed to extract data out of it and finds a signal in a population that has almost no cardiovascular disease, he finds a cardiovascular disease signal in adolescents, particularly in adolescent males. Um, and we were hoping that we could rely on the Israeli database, which is much better than ours, much more comprehensive. But in fact, he finds it first in our Kludgy database. Then the CDC confirms what he found and says that they can see it in some other databases that aren't public. And only then do the Israelis reveal that, oh, yeah, now we see it too in their database, okay? So the good news is that everybody agrees that there's a problem with pericarditis and cardiotoxicity, particularly in adolescent males, and it's particularly worse with uh, 
the Moderna product, which is about five times the dose as the uh, Pfizer product. Um, uh, and it takes them about a month and a half, and then they come out with the press release that they had in the meeting that they had, I think, last week. And they say, aha, we've got a problem, uh, Houston, uh, using your moon metaphor. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and we are having a significant toxicity in adolescence, this heart problem. And the thing about that is that you can pick out that signal out of that junky data because young adult males generally don't have heart disease. Yeah. As soon as you get much older, you get a background of heart disease that's not trivial. And furthermore, if somebody says, oh, Uncle Joe had a heart attack two days after he took vaccine, the default is to say, well, Uncle Joe would have had a heart attack anyhow. Sure. Um, but the data aren't kind of looking so much like that anymore. And it looks like maybe the reason why those signals aren't being detected in some of the older cohorts is because there's this high background noise. And that's the way it goes with all of this data mining is we call those confounders. And we call this effect that I just walked you through masking. So now you have some fancy epidemiology words, but you can track it back. It's just really simple concepts that you didn't have any problem understanding, right? Um, so masking and confounding hides some of the risk factors and the adverse events. What other adverse events are out there? Thrombocytopenia is a big medical word. What it means is low blood platelets. Blood coagulation in general, including deep venous thromboses, these are the blood clots that you get often in your pelvis, then shoot up your vena cava and lodge in your lungs, and they can kill you. Um, and they can potentially go to your brain in some cases. Uh, clotting in your brain, like I was talking about before, in the veins. And it's my hypothesis that what's really causing the cardiac problems is blood clots in the small vessels in your heart. Why would I say that? Well, number one, that's one way that you can cause those kinds of things like pericarditis and myocarditis. There's other ways. So multiple hypotheses, that happens to be my favorite. Why? Well, we already know that adenovirus vectors and now the RNA vectors we know are causing disorders of blood clotting. Furthermore, the pathogen, the virus itself, causes this. So we've got this overlap of vaccine symptoms and pathogen symptoms. And by the way, the common denominator of all this, and, it, and it's in both genetic vaccine types, the common denominator is spike. So... Uh, why do some people get these problems and other people don't get these problems? Always a good question. Part of it is risk factors. Some people have predisposition to blood clotting, among other things. We have all kinds of genetic diversity in our population. Age, obesity, a lot of these other factors. But some of us believe that what may be happening also is because these are gene therapy-based in some people, the gene therapy works really good. In other words, they make a lot of protein because they get really efficient gene transfer. Other people, it doesn't work so good because they don't get such efficient gene transfer. It's probably a normal bell curve. 
right? And some people that are out on the high side with a lot of expression of these proteins, this spike protein derived from the virus, might be getting more bad stuff happening in their bodies than might happen people at the other end of the curve. So that's one explanation for why some people have these strong post-vaccination syndrome complexes. And those complexes appear to have a fair amount of overlap with uh, long COVID. This is this prolonged chronic phase of COVID and with acute COVID also. And those problems include low blood platelets, cardiac disease, blood clotting, some of these odd uh, things like female reproductive tract related things. So then you might ask, is it safe in pregnancy? That would be a good question. Thanks for asking. Um, I got you. And and, um, so with the new vaccine, you never really know until you test it. And it takes a long time to test it, like, you know, nine months plus uh, gestation time. So CDC published a, a paper based on the vSafe database, which is really even more flawed in some ways than the VAERS. It's another self-reporting database. And they said, well, it looks like it's safe, but we can't be sure, and it might change when we get more data in because the database is so crummy. It's so small and so imperfect. Uh, A week and a half later, the NIH announced a prospective randomized clinical trial for pregnancy in adults with vaccination. So I guess eventually we'll get there to the NIH answer. Uh, There are data suggesting that there isn't much of a difference in the background rate of spontaneous abortions and the rate detected in vaccine recipients. But some people observe that those data are skewed by having a lot of women that took vaccine in the third trimester, which is a time when baby is fairly big and spontaneous abortions don't happen very often. Um, And if you take those data out for women that were vaccinated in their last trimester and just focus on women vaccinated during their first or second trimester, it seems that you end up with a, if you just focus on the first and second trimester women, a spontaneous abortion rate that might be greater than 50%. So is it safe in pregnancy? <clears throat> the party line is absolutely. Um, however, if you look a little deeper in the data, there are suggestions that maybe not so much. Uh, and uh, so to be determined, that's the way science is, mm-hmm. is there's unknowns and we, there's trends but nothing ever ends up being proven is the truth of it. It's always hypothesis and you're subject to it changing the next time somebody does a study. So pregnancy. What about young adults, adolescents, that's 18 down to like 12 um, children. That's kind of 12 and down to neonates and infants. Those are the newborns and that. So 
But what about those groups? Um, the incidence of disease from COVID in those groups is pretty well, pretty low. The incidence of death is close to zero. Um, and the incidence of these cardiac events alone, that's just the one that we officially recognize, is not zero. So you end up with a small number divided by a very small number. And that ratio doesn't look very good. Uh, so um, that's led to a lot of people saying that they think that the risk-benefit justification for children, infants, adolescents, and young adults isn't there, which is why folks like yourself end up on the horns of the dilemma about going back to school because the schools are insisting that you get vaccine, but the risk-benefit ratio uh, doesn't look very encouraging that it makes a lot of sense for you to get a vaccine. And so why are they forcing all of us to get vaccines? And I'm pretty persuaded by that argument. I think that you control your own body uh, and you get to make your own decisions, especially for experimental medical products. Uh, so that's that. Now, if you're an old person, even older than me, you know, if you're 75 or above, the chance of, if you get COVID, the chance of you dying is pretty good. Uh, so you want to take all the vaccine you can get sure. to get, you know, certainly two doses uh, to get your immune system working and tuned up for this particular virus. And it makes total sense to do that. In between, it's it's a little rough, you know, it depends on a lot of So I hope that helps in walking you through the core technology and uh, some of the adverse events and risks and uh, how they relate to the different age cohorts because that's the essence of one of the key problems that a lot of people see is this kind of one-size-fits-all. Everybody just needs to go out and get the jab. But if you, if you look below that at the data and you match it to stratification by these age cohorts or other special cohorts, immunodeficient is another one, um, then that logic doesn't make as much sense because it's not clear. You know, there's, there was a paper out that I guess it's going to be pulled, but it illustrates the point. And in, in I don't want to sound alarmist, but it asserted that you were going to have three deaths for every two, no, three saved for every two that die. The thing about that paper, and whether it's eight to two or eight to one or ten to one, uh, it's still not looking very good. No. Um, but here's the thing. The ones that are being saved on average are the old ones. They're the ones that would die. And the ones the age distribution that are carrying the burden of excess death by the youth. So in that kind of strategy, you've got a situation where you're having death and disability in young people to save a few old people. So it's, it's the inverse Titanic. It's old men first, women yeah. and children second. Um, and uh, that's a uh, good 
once again, <laughs> super. Um, <laughs> so that's if that if that dynamic plays out, and it could in in a universal vaccine environment, if we don't start stratifying the vaccination, uh, the intergenerational tension is not going to be a good thing, right? In terms of social uh, stability and other things. Uh, your age cohort is not going to be very happy about that. You're already going to have the burden of paying for me when I'm old and decrepit. Um, and uh, on top of that, more of you dying, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so those are kind of some of the big issues out there. The other one I'd like to touch on, and I know I talk a lot. No, 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 um, no, no. So, pardon me. No, no, no. What I, what I was going to say is, um, well, real quick, I have to use the restroom. But what I was going to say is, um, I can edit this part out. I see you yawning. If 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 you if you're tired, if you because I, I know you're giving a million interviews a day. Don't let me keep you. I don't want to. It's okay. No, let's 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 get this going. So I'm, right, I'm, I'm you've given me an opportunity to speak to an age group, um, in a population that I a lot of these podcasts don't hit. All right. Well, I'm I, really glad to do it. All right. Well, let me use the restroom, and I'll be back in like 30 seconds. I'll I'll edit this part out. Don't worry. Yep. <laughs> I figured you're not you're not talking too much. I, I always say on this podcast, I've found a trend looking back over hundreds of episodes. I talk less when I'm doing a podcast with an individual who I feel is light years smarter than me. So it's the greatest compliment if I shut up during a podcast and it's and, and it's, it's a backhand. It's a backhand uh, insult to those who I talk nonstop with. But, yeah, no, the only reason I brought that up is I just in the past I have kept people hostage without realizing it. So if at any point you okay. got to go, you just let me know. I can go for hours. I just want to be courteous. If you, we're 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 good. All right, beautiful. We're good. All right, we'll and we'll keep going. I'll so. chop all that out. So, we got the core technology. We got the core technology and the analogies of mRNA out. We have the problems with it, the stratification. What to you in the adverse events? In the adverse events. What to you is most important for? my age group, my audience, the people listening to my podcast to hear? Two things, and I'm going to lead with the most important, is the bioethics of all this. And this is a case where federal law is your friend. And many folks your age are facing this uh, demand that you have to get vaccinated to go to work or to go back to university or whatever. Um, and you may be uncomfortable with that. Now, I'm, I'd like to say clearly, explicitly, I'm not anti-vaccine. This is the, my yeah. technology. I spent 30 years developing vaccines. I just feel a need to say it. And a lot of these vaccines, these vaccines are really effective in keeping people from dying or getting them out, keeping them out of the hospital, particularly those older age groups. But bioethics require for an experimental product, which these are, they're not yet licensed, therefore they're experimental medicines. They require that there be full and complete disclosure of risk to you if you're going to accept one. These are the rules. It's called the common rule. It's coded in the federal regulations. The Code of Federal Regulations, you're going to look up the common rule and you'll find it there. It's a, it's a law for clinical research, medical research on humans. You have to have full and complete disclosure of risks. And what does that mean? When you buy a bottle of aspirin, Tylenol, or whatever, 
that little slip of paper in there that you never look at, you just throw away immediately. But if you were to open it up, you would see, yeah, you'd see this list. Well, now the package insert is worse. You would you... see a oh, wow. list. Yeah, you'd see a huge list and you'd say this aspirin is going to kill me for sure. Yeah. You, you might think that. Um, it's got a great big comprehensive list of things that can go wrong. Some of them extremely low frequency. That's the level of granularity that risks of these vaccines are supposed to be disclosed to you. That's the first point. Number two, those risks have to be expressed in a way that you can readily understand them. So I can't use words like thrombocytopenia or menorrhagia or, you know, uh, these other fancy medical terms. I have to say blood clots and irregularities in your period. So that those things have to be said in clear and simple terms that you can understand. Third point, this is bedrock. You have to accept the product of your own voluntary will. You have, you have the absolute right to say yes or no. You cannot be coerced. That means pressure from social media or the president saying you have to take a vaccine or any of that stuff. That's all coercion. You cannot be coerced to taking an experimental product, nor can you be enticed. What is enticement? I don't know if you've heard about this. Uh, we're going to give out ice cream so the kiddies come and we give them the jab without getting their parents' approval, right? That's enticement. Yeah. Enticement is, so there's a program that your peers may be encountering, I'm hearing, where uh, there's an organization responsible for uh, medical health on campuses that has a central uh, organization that's tied to CDC that is going to give out grants of up to $3,000 per student if the student will get vaccinated, okay? We call that enticement. It's a bribe, okay? <laughs> it's a bribe to get the vaccine, okay? And, and the, in my way of thinking, so none of that is legal by the Code of Federal Regulations. And this goes back to the Nuremberg Code mm -hmm. and the Helsinki Accords and um, the Belmont Report, which was something that was done here in the U.S. government, and the Federal Code of Regulations. It's all there. You don't do these things because it's a slippery slope, just like we were talking about censorship. Um, and it goes, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a strong story. I'm not saying that anybody is a Nazi, okay? I'm gonna give the context of the Nuremberg trials that gave rise to the Nuremberg Code. So one of the medical experiments that were done on prisoners and forced laborers, so people that did not have free will, had no idea the risks. They weren't expressed to them. They were just told, you're gonna be in this medical experiment, we're gonna do stuff to you, okay? That's what those doctors got trumped for. And one of the things was that the German troops were having to operate in very cold climates, areas that they weren't used to operating in, like say Moscow uh, in Finland and places like that. Um, you know, and that didn't go so well for them anyhow, uh, but um, they were worried about it for good reason. And so they were saying, well, we're going to take these prisoners or other people that we think are low status, and it's okay for us to, freeze to subject them to cold and 
experiment with them about what could we do to make it so they would be less subject to the cold for the greater good. We're sacrificing a few for the benefit of the many. Okay. So that's, that's got two components to it. The ends justify the means and the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's the logic. If you take it apart and we had trials and a bunch of those guys got hung and we came up with this code that says, no, 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 you don't do that. You got to have these other things. And then we forgot about it and we kind of started blurring the lines and then we had to have the Helsinki meeting and the Helsinki accord say, no, no guys get back on the track, do what we said we were going to do before. And then we had Tuskegee and if any of your listeners mm-hmm. are African-American, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, this is a big reason this, and I guess some things that happened in Angola with a company called Pfizer, I'm told, having to do with babies. Uh, um, so if you're an African-American at this point, you know, you're hearing things that you're not liking very much, <laughs> right? And then we're all surprised that they're not taking the jab uh, but and participating in clinical research. But if I was an African-American and that was part of my cultural history, I would be thinking, I don't trust these guys any further than I can throw them. Aren't, aren't uh, there very and, low, sorry to interrupt, aren't there very low vaccine rate or vaccination people getting the jab in, in Japan? I was going to say Unit 731, you can kind of see that echoing. I That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. I don't know about that cultural experience. But yeah, okay, Same we get point. the point. Um, so, uh, so there's this history why we have these laws and what we've got right now going on as a logic is that it's okay i'm going to bring it back home now to where we started it's okay to censor information and to keep people from knowing the risks and conveying those risks completely comprehensively and understandably it's okay to force them to get the jab. Why? For the common good. Okay? And I'm not going to unpack that just a little tiny bit more. Um, now, I'm, now I'm deep in heresy land. Uh, they're going to come for oh, me for sure. I think if we um, take down the flag and put up a hammer and sickle, we'll be good. <laughs> yeah, and as, as I've seen some people tweet, Dr. Malone didn't kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, right. Neither did I. Uh, well, yes, you have. You have been on the Twitter. Oh. Um, so, uh, so, but here's the next little logic step in this. So we've talked about the bioethics. Those are rules. Those are laws. And I've heard multiple cases of laws telling lawyers telling school administrators these are the law. And those school administrating traders saying, I don't care, I'm still going to do it. Here's another illustration. One of the early podcasts I had was from a Russian woman in the UK. And uh, she, her podcast mostly goes out to fellow expat Russians. And she, most of her community had escaped from the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union and come to the UK. So a lot of Jews and others. And uh, a few months ago, that community became sufficiently alarmed 
and they took it as a social action that they printed out the Nuremberg Code and they took it to their members of parliament and they said, these are the rules. And we've lived in a society where they decided to break these rules. And we're putting you on notice that we're going to watch you because if you break these rules, we're going to hold you accountable. These are the rules that you have to be held accountable for the Nuremberg Code. So there's that. Now I'm going to venture into uh, the topic of the day. We're all we're supposed to have 70% of us vaccinated by July 4th. And here we are in July 1. We're not getting there for some reason. Um, uh, probably it's all my fault. It's all, uh, it's so, uh, <laughs> of course it is. Sure, I'll be told that a hundred times. Uh, all the people I've killed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with by encouraging them not to take the technology that I helped invent. That's a little weird. Um, but <laughs> Sales uh, one. So, <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Why 70%? Why do they want 70% of everybody to take the jab? Well, can you answer? It's herd immunity, and from what I understand, it's kind Bingo. of like... You, that's like you got it. That's clearing, the, that's clearing the brush out from like the forest floor, right? So a fire can only spread so far. Yeah, that's a good metaphor. Kind of. Um, so herd immunity. So herd immunity is a point in a outbreak where the ability of the virus to transmit from one person to another person, a better, if you know, if you understand nuclear reactors, okay. nuclear reactors are a great metaphor for understanding herd immunity, right? You've got the, you've got the um, graphite the columns yeah. that you push down that absorb the radioactive emissions so that you cool the chain reaction, yeah. right? Those uh, graphite rods are, People that are already immune. So nu- nuclear herd and immunity. If you've, if, right. Yeah, and, and if you've got enough people that are immune, the ones that are emitting the radioactivity, in other words, the virus in this metaphor, that virus will hit one of those graphite rods and it'll be quenched. It won't go any further. Actually, it won't have a chain reaction. Here's the best analogy. You got the soundproofing. There are a couple flat surfaces, like the laptop screen, the this table, but... And then part of the ceiling is showing, but those echoes die out because the rest of them catch them. So it's like, right, right. Good. You, you get it. Okay. So now you understand herd immunity. Woo. We can calculate, we can calculate um, what it takes to reach herd immunity. And the key variables are whether or not the infected person is making shedding virus and able to infect another person. So they're the, they're, in our metaphor of the carbon rods and the radioactivity, they're the ones admitting radioactivity. And the potentially previously uninfected person, how well are they protected if they get hit by those particles, those viruses? How well are they protected to keep them from getting infected? So those are the two variables. You can set up a graph showing the interaction of those two and generate curves that speak to how many people would have to be vaccinated for a vaccine of a certain degree of effectiveness? 40% effective at blocking infection, 50, 60, okay? So you can run those curves. We 
the government says to you, 70% of you have to take vaccine in order to reach herd immunity or have been infected. Right? Um, what, they're, what that implies is that somebody somewhere behind the curtain did a calculation and they calculated what, how much vaccine uptake is going to be required to reach herd immunity in all of us on average. In order to make that calculation, they have to know how good the virus is, not at blocking disease, which is what we use to test these. I'm sorry. They have to know the vaccine. I got it confused. I apologize. They have to know how good the vaccine is to keep you from becoming infected or shedding virus and infecting somebody else. So we call that transmissibility. Whether or not that vaccine protects you from disease and death is irrelevant. But that's what we've measured for good reason. It's great to know that we have identified vaccines that on average will protect you at a, you know, nine out of 10 times from getting put in the hospital or dying when, you know, the other one time you would. You know, and normally you would, it would be, you would have 10 times. I'm using this metaphor. I'm trying to express it not very well. You get the point. 90% effective for disease and death. It says nothing about how effective it is for preventing virus transmissibility. We didn't capture those data. Those are really hard clinical trials to run to look at transmissibility. The way you do that is you look at, uh, somebody coming into a crowded office space that's infected and nobody else is wearing masks or uh, families is, a, is you can do family studies where somebody in the family is infected and you look at how frequently everybody else gets infected with or without vaccine. They're hard, expensive studies to do and they didn't do them. The point is the 70% vaccine uptake to read herd, herd immunity Somebody just pulled that out of the air because we can't do the calculations because we don't have the data. So that's the other part of this is the drivers saying, why do we got to conscript really young adults, children, adolescents to get vaccinated? What's to protect grandma? Mostly grandma's the one that's in danger of dying. Hopefully grandma's already vaccinated. She's in the high risk group. Okay. So we're trying to protect grandma from infection spread by you and your younger brother, et cetera. Uh, but you and your younger brother aren't at hardly any risk at all of ever ending up in the hospital or dying from this particular virus. It's, if it was Ebola, it'd be a different thing, but it's not. Um, so what you're hearing, if I want to, I'm going to put an ageist spin on this. Ready? You know, what you're hearing is the old folks telling you guys that you got to get vaccine so they're protected. That's the truth of it. So it's, it's, okay, world, that's a, it's World War One, right? It's, it's the young men fighting <laughs> the old men's war. It is, it is an unpleasant truth. It is, it is very inconvenient, but this is what's really underpinning this. 
And that logic right there is what's being used to justify the censorship. Because the belief is that if you had the full information about the risks, you wouldn't take vaccine. And so, and the public health officials are basically acting like parents. They're, they're being paternalistic and authoritarian. They're saying, get in line, get your vaccine, or we're not going to let you get educated or go to work. And um, don't question authority. Uh, we know best, right? That's kind of, that is the message. Mm-hmm. If you unpack it, uh, that's not right, in my opinion. And this gets to why is Dr. Malone out there risking his career and you know all this stuff to talk about these things because it's he feels really strongly this isn't right and furthermore it's violating these fundamental principles of things like free speech and your personal rights i mean if we don't have the right to control our own body and make decisions as adults about our own body we've gone a long way to a bad place uh, and for instance, I would never say this to somebody from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia because they're owned. <laughs> yeah, right? it, it's, yeah. <laughs> or or somebody from the People's Republic of China. Yeah, yeah. Where it's you know it's it's kind of similar to the the Terence McKenna, the philosopher ethnobotanist who died in two thousand. Right, it's his quote about uh, why we should be able to smoke marijuana, and he said because. If life, liberty, and happiness doesn't uh, doesn't apply to deciding what chemicals I put in my body, then the Bill of Rights is or the, the Declaration of Independence isn't worth the hemp it's written on. But I mean, truly, yeah. if, if we can't, yeah. if you can't decide that, it's and it's you know most people will probably look at what we're saying and oh you're clutching your pearls right it's oh it's, but truly, it always starts with something very very small. We just gotta censor this. We just got to censor this. You're too stupid to think for yourself. It always leads. It it could very well start out with the best of intentions. It always leads to a demon getting behind the wheel and taking the world into a hellscape. It's happened again and again. And I like to to put it in a little happier light. (laughs) I like to say say that uh, we all know that airplanes will kill us and cars will kill us. But we know it hardly ever happens. And we're grown up enough that we can make it a rational decision to get on that airplane or go drive that car and go get your groceries. Um, and you could be dead by the time, you know, before you get to the grocery store. It's a fact. And yet we do it all the time. So it's logic that we can't let people know what the true risks are because then they wouldn't do what we want them to do. To my way of thinking, it's not the job of the government to compel us. It's the job of the government to convince us. If it's that important, then give us the clear data. Give us the rationale. Let's be open and transparent. Let's make it clear that this is science-based decision-making. We call it evidence-based medicine. And trust people like yourself and the people listening here to make their own decisions. 
as adults because that's what you are. And you're plenty smart to figure out whether or not you want to take this, that, or the other vaccine or no vaccine or go around the rest of your life with a mask, whatever the thing is, okay? But it's your right to make that. Or or this is bedrock. And that's why I say this is where right and left, conservative, Democrat, whatever, that all goes away. You know, we're, we're either Americans and believe in these fundamental principles or we're not. Yeah, and and uh, I think that is the core for me. So what the way I like to close these, and thank you for letting me talk to you, Absolutely. and most importantly for talking to your audience. The way I like to close them is, it's your body, and what we've talked about is the control of information, the potential risks that are going on, and then the ethics, and. The ethics go way back to mid-century and beyond. And it's something we've all agreed on, is that you, these are experimental products, therefore you have the right to full and open disclosure of all risks. You have to be able to comprehend those risks and you have to freely accept those risks if you're gonna take that experimental product. Those are the rules and you control your body, nobody else. Um, and that's, that's uh, for me, that's kind of the mic drop moment here is uh you know it's 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 about you and your choices and not about um some uh centralized bureaucratic system that is imposing things that if you look at it through glass darkly it's not really in your personal interest mm-hmm. it's- uh, and um it's okay to be altruistic. If you want to take vaccine because you want to protect grandma because she can't take vaccine, God it. bless you. Go for it. Yeah. It's, 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 you're an adult and you can choose what is right for you. If you want to stay inside and wear a helmet and a life jacket and never smoke a cigarette and drink, hey, go for it. I'm not going to tell you you can't. If you want to go be Hunter S. Thompson and shoot Tommy guns and drop acid and do cocaine, I don't pay your taxes. Don't hurt anyone else. Go for it. But at, at the center of it all is that that is where we are. And that is what this place is here for. And there's never been a nation like this. And there will not be another like it. You don't you, you don't have to be OK with it. Don't shove it down other people's throats. And to me, that is that is Dr. Malone. Thank you for coming on here, sir. I will put your Twitter in the description. It's a hoot to follow. And uh, I love seeing everybody delete okay. their LinkedIn and, and tweeting it at you. It's, um, you know, I don't know when the truth will come out, but um, after after this tonight, I have on uh, Howard Bloom, who was Michael Jackson's publicist. Uh-huh. And I just finished his book today. And there's a quote in there. And it's the quote I've emailed you. I had never heard before today. Lies, lies run sprints. Truth runs marathons. In the long run, it will all come out. You cannot hide it. Just like the Nazis being hung, eventually it all comes out. Just like that, those mass graves they're finding in Canada now. It will all come out. The best you can do is be the best person you can today. Stand up for what you believe in. And uh, die on your feet and live on your knees. Not that I want to die. And furthermore, Dr. Malone didn't kill himself. But... On a serious note, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for coming on here. Thank you for having the patience with me berating you with emails. And um, I'll send you a link when this episode is up.
Thank you, sir. All right. Good. God bless. God bless everybody. Stay Recording safe. Recording stopped.